Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15, and chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Asia, and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy, this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you that as we come to reflect on your word, that your spirit tells us that it changes our hearts and lives. So we pray this morning that as we reflect on this narrative in the book of Acts, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that your spirit would be in our presence, and that you would mold us and shape us to be more in tune with your image, and that you would um, refresh our hearts with the good news of the gospel in the process. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, thunderstorms uh, at my house are always uh, an interesting, uh, interesting sort of event. I have to tell you, I love thunderstorms. Uh, I get excited when thunderstorms happen. I'm the guy that wants to go outside and sit on the porch and watch uh, thunderstorms as they come and as they go. But I will be the first to admit that my fascination with thunderstorms is probably borderline dangerous. Just a couple years ago, when we had this derecho storm that came through Baltimore, uh, you know it was a bad storm when they come up with a unique name for something that you've never heard of before. Well, we had this derecho storm, and I can remember that night being, uh, being uh, woken up in the middle of the night, sounding like a, a freight train was coming through the neighborhood, and my wife was saying, don't you think we should do something, take the kids to the basement or something like that? And I said, no, it's great, it's wonderful. Why? Because... I love thunderstorms, and thankfully no trees fell on our house uh, that night, like it did for many in our neighborhood, sadly. My eldest son is the same way. He loves storms too. He'll be out there on the porch watching it, but the rest of my family is the complete opposite. They don't like storms, they can't stand them, and at first sight of them, they want to go down into the basement and hide. 
What it is, is it's a case study. It's a case study on how we can all have a similar or shared experience, yet each and every one of us has a very different reaction to that shared experience. The book of Acts tells us about how lots of different people responded to the message of the gospel. This good news of Jesus Christ went all throughout the ancient world and some accepted this message and their lives were changed forever, never to be the same again. But others opposed this message vehemently with all the energy that they had in themselves. Last week, if you were with us, you saw that uh, the church, this ancient church, chose seven men to take care of a group of widows that they had discovered were being neglected in their church. And their job was to share with them, their job was to serve them, and to give of themselves in service for the sake of the gospel. But this morning, what we'll see is that one of those men named Stephen was called to not only serve and give of himself in the gospel to care for widows, but in our narrative this morning, you see that he had to give of himself in the most ultimate sense. You see, Stephen was out spreading the gospel. He was out sharing the message of the good news of Jesus Christ like the other apostles. He was performing miracles and people were amazed and people were being converted to the message of Jesus Christ. Many were humbly accepting this message, but others were angered by it. They opposed it as much as they could. They rejected it in the angriest of terms. You know, often when we talk about the gospel or this good news of Jesus Christ, we tend to, and rightly so, we tend to focus on all the blessings that come from the gospel. We tend to focus on the beauty of the message. We talk about how it's a message in which Christ's sacrifice demonstrates an unbelievable love that we can't even categorize. We talk about free grace that has no strings attached to it whatsoever. We talk about an unconditional forgiveness, that there's nothing that God cannot forgive. We talk about the bliss of heaven and the fact that that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. But there are also really hard things to the gospel as well. 1 Corinthians talks about the fact that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and its folly to the Gentiles. First Peter talks about how the gospel is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Well, what does it mean by that when it says that? Well, the gospel first tells us that we're sinful. It tells us that our sin has destroyed our relationship with the most holy God. And it humbles us. It humbles us by telling us that we cannot get to heaven on our own. It humbles us by telling us that we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and and do enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds and earn our way back to God. And for for those of us that really, really wrestle with pride, this may be the hardest thing for us. Because often when our pride is challenged, we get angry and do everything we can to defend ourselves. But you see, the beauty of the gospel comes in really what is our weakest moment. The moment at which we admit before God that trusting in ourselves will not accomplish what we most need. It comes in those moments where we repent not just of the bad things that we have done, of our sin, 
but we also repent of our righteousness and our apparent good deeds. It comes in the moment where we instead choose to trust him with our lives rather than ourselves. And that is so offensive to some that they would rather reject it and walk away than accept it. Our story tells us about a group of Hellenistic Jews that rejected the gospel. This was a group that formed the Hebrew or the Hellenistic Jewish synagogue in the ancient world, and this message of the gospel angered them. Each one of the members of this synagogue would be one of the most respected leaders in their culture. They were looked up to as experts in the scripture. They were proud of their knowledge. They were proud of their ancestry. They were proud of their heritage and their position. And they were proud of their religious goodness. And then Stephen and the apostles came along and said to them that their religion or their religiosity was not enough. Instead, they needed to accepted to to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and to have their righteousness to have their religiosity challenged was something that infuriated them beyond anything else Tim Keller who's a pastor says that what often keeps people from receiving God's grace is not so much their sins but often their good works You see, these men were so blinded by their good works. They were so blinded by their religiosity and their goodness that they missed what was their true condition. And in the process, they missed Jesus. But they didn't just miss him. They hated him. And they hated all of his followers as well. Romans 10 tells us about uh, another group of Jews that had zeal for God But it was zeal that was not according to knowledge. And what it tells us is that there there is an apparent zeal that seems so right. There's a religious energy and a passion that seems so right. But in the end, it can end up keeping us from a relationship with Jesus. Our own perception of our own goodness can become the greatest stumbling block to often knowing Jesus. So these men, in their anger, tried to argue with Stephen. It says in verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So instead they chose to spread lies about him and they brought up charges against him in some sort of fake kangaroo court. And when Stephen was brought before the court, he he used this as another opportunity to, to preach the gospel before them. And he goes on with this lengthy sermon that we're going to look at next week as we gather for worship. But at the end of the speech, no one was converted. Instead, they were enraged. It says in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Often when we think of of the ancient practice of stoning people, which we don't think about often, but when we do, we think of it as just a group of people picking up a couple pebbles, throwing throwing them at a person, but the reality was much more gruesome than what we picture. In reality, people would take off their garments so they could pick up small boulders that they would end up heaving upon a person. The person who was accused would be stripped down all the way to a loincloth and the first witness of the kangaroo court would get the first shot at stoning this person. 
After that, the second witness would throw his stone. And then after that, the bystanders could join in. And with each rock that landed, it would slowly crush a person until they were dead. You see, up until this point, these first followers of Jesus had faced some persecution. We've seen how they were arrested and threatened not to share the message of the gospel. We've seen how some of them were flogged, but now the heat has been turned up. It has turned up so much that in chapter 8 it tells us that Christians began to scatter outside of Jerusalem for fear of their lives to different towns all around them. But what this section also begins to help us see is the bigger narrative that's going to end up defining the rest of the book of Acts. And that is the narrative of persecution. You know, persecution is a kind of a tough concept for us to wrestle with in our cultural moment. We see instances of persecution that happens all around the world. We read about it in newspapers. We watch it on the news. And the world, of course, has been transfixed recently with uh, what ISIS has been doing in terms of intentionally seeking out and butchering Christians. We've read stories this week about ISIS going throughout Iraq and marking big letter N's on the home of Christians that stand for Nazarene, homes in which they would enter in and young children would be beheaded in front of their parents who would then be killed and tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. But this is nothing new. Brutal persecution happens everywhere. It happens all the time. And it's something that we must pray for these people as they bear underneath this persecution. And it's something that we must pray against as well. But the challenge comes in trying to sort through what it means for us as Americans in our American culture in our cultural moment, about what it means to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ and face persecution. I read this week uh, about a story about a company called the Sovereign Luxury Experience. And this is a Christian company that specializes in lavish luxury vacations for believers. It says they seek to offer exceptional luxury, exceptional service, and exceptional experiences. And this February, I learned that they are offering a Christian study tour on a luxury cruise ship to the Eastern Caribbean. Participants will have an opportunity to study the scriptures, sit under really good teaching, and tour St. Thomas, St. Martin, and the Bahamas. The topic of this year's Caribbean cruise, in their words, our theme will be Christ's call to endure persecution and suffer faithfully. Now, I want to be clear about this. I think there is nothing wrong with going on this cruise. In fact, if you would like to take a collection up and send your pastor, I will be happy to learn all I can on persecution and suffering for Jesus and report that back to you. But what it does is it highlights how tricky this topic is really in our cultural moment. So really briefly, I'd like to look at four things that, about persecution that will eventually fill out more as we go through the book of Acts, and it helps us to kind of begin to think about what it means for us as Americans in this culture to suffer persecution. First thing we see in the book of Acts and all really throughout the scriptures is that persecution is guaranteed for followers of Jesus Christ. 
says in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 15. He says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was inspired by these words of Jesus, and he wrote a lot about suffering and persecution. One of the things he wrote is, he said, we must learn to regard people less in light of what they do or admit to do and more in light of what they suffer. And he famously wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. And of course, we know from history that Bonhoeffer gave his own life for his faith as well. And perhaps the most cut and dry passage is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It seems to be throughout all of Scripture that a a necessary conclusion to following Jesus Christ is to open oneself up to persecution. But the other thing that we see about persecution is often that we get really good at trying to avoid it. Or we live in a culture that is really good at trying to avoid persecution. We live, of course, in a country where we are free to practice our faith within a certain set of boundaries. And we need to celebrate that. We need to be thankful for that. We need to thank God for it each day because it certainly has not always been that way. One of the most powerful books in Christian history is is the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this book gives accounts or stories or narratives of people that had to suffer for their faith, especially in the first few hundred years of Christianity. People who were butchered and killed for their faith, people who were burned at the stake, people who were boiled in large bowls, people who were fed to the lions. And this went on for several hundreds of years in Christian history, all the way up until Constantine became the Roman emperor. And what Constantine did is he made Christianity the legal religion of the empire. And then Christians now had, or began to have to wrestle with what it meant to suffer persecution in a religiously positive environment. It wasn't unlike what you and I have to deal with now. They, like us, had to wrestle with what it meant to be now persecuted for their faith. What I do know is that we live in a culture that tends to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. I, like many people, were were really frustrated with our president after 9-11 when the advice that he gave for our country was to go to the shopping mall and start healing through shopping. Distract yourself from the pain with all sorts of pleasure. That's the narrative that we hear in our culture. Do everything you can to avoid pain 
and instead maximize, maximize your life with pleasure. And one of the things that we have to wonder is whether some of this mentality has crept into the way we think about our faith as well. I can't tell you how many people come to me and complain about how they struggle to feel God's presence. How many people come to me and say they don't feel close to God or they don't feel Him to be very real in their lives. Many complain that they have very lukewarm or half-hearted feelings when it comes to their relationship with God. And perhaps we feel this way because at the, at the core of it, we've bought into a low-risk, low-reward perspective of our faith. We've learned to embrace a faith that doesn't involve persecution at all. But in doing so, we really miss out. Because the third thing that we see about persecution, the third thing we see all throughout the Scriptures, is that God works through persecution to grow His church in amazing ways. Many have argued really that this is the greatest growth strategy of any church movement in human history, and that is persecution. You see it as a paradigm throughout church history that when the church faced its most intense persecution, it grew in leaps and bounds. Just this week in USA Today, David Skeel uh, wrote an article about, about how Christianity will live on in Iraq. And what he does is he affirms this paradigm throughout human history, this paradigm of the fact that, where that whenever there's greater persecution, the faith will grow in greater ways. And he talks about China, a country where Christianity has continued to be oppressed and stamped down, yet the number of Christians is predicted to be roughly 60 million people in the country of China. 60 million people who at any moment could be arrested or even killed for their faith. And yet the church flourishes. He writes in his article, Violence, when it comes to the Christian faith, rarely has the final word. You see, God is in the business of working powerfully in the places of greatest weakness and pain and suffering in our world. And we even see that in our narrative where Luke just foreshadows a character who will be important later on. He, he just foreshadows a character named Saul, who not only was probably a part of this trial that killed Stephen, but who laid his garments down so that others could stone Stephen. And we know from the rest of Acts that Saul takes this instance, he takes this experience, and becomes one of the most intense persecutors of the church. That is, until he meets Jesus Christ. And becomes one of the most intense advocates and spreaders of the gospel in Christian history. So we see that persecution is guaranteed. We see that we live in a culture that tends to avoid all pain. And that that often seeps into the church. We've seen that God works powerfully through persecution. And finally, the last thing we see is that our persecution as followers of Jesus Christ is unique. Our persecution is unique. You know, in reality, people suffer persecution all the time. All throughout the world, all throughout human history, people have died for their ideas, they've died for their beliefs, and they've died for their ideology about all sorts of different things, whether it's a, it's a religious conviction, whether it's a political conviction. You see people willing to lay down their lives all the time 
So what is it that makes Christian martyrs unique? What is it that makes Christian persecution unique? Well, the thing that makes it unique is that at the center of it, at the center of our faith, is one who was willing to give his own life so that you and I can be forgiven. You see, we believe in a God who allowed himself to be unjustly martyred. The passage tells us that right before Stephen was killed, it says that the heavens opened up and Stephen was able to look into the heavens and see Jesus Christ himself. And when he saw Jesus Christ in the flesh, he uttered two statements. He said in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, Luke records these words very carefully. He records them very carefully because he wants us to think of another innocent victim who also was dragged out of the city in order to be executed. He wants us to to think of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 23 where he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Acts chapter 7 also says of Stephen, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. We are reminded of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 23, where he was hanging on the cross. And he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, no other faith prays for the forgiveness of its executioners. Only a faith that believes in a God who was executed for the sake of sinners like you and I can actually pray for the forgiveness of their executioners. Only a faith that knows that this life is not the end, that it's not the final chapter. It is a faith that knows that beyond this world, we will celebrate a great feast with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Stephen could give of his life because he served a God who had given his life for him. He could give his life because he knew that there was a great feast with that Savior that was awaiting him just on the other side of heaven. And it is that very sacrifice It is that sacrifice of Jesus Christ made on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins that we memorialize and celebrate here this morning as we sit at the Lord's table. And ultimately, it is that feast that we just get a taste of here that we look forward to at the final consummation of God's great plan of redemption when we sit down with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and dine with Him throughout eternity. It is those things that we celebrate when we come before the table this morning. Let's pray.